Let's Talk Development, Episode 13. Hello and welcome to this episode of Let's Talk Development by CDPR. I'm Asad Lyakat and I'll be your host today. I am an economist and political scientist by training, and I've been engaged in research on political economy and now the digital economy for over a decade. Um, I'm also an occasional podcast host and have my own podcast called Unpacking Us that I hope you will check out. This episode of Let's Talk Development is about political parties and voters and how the upcoming election in Pakistan, which is scheduled for early next year, will be shaped by different aspects of how parties are structured um, and how they engage with voters and how voters behave. Uh, our guest today is Dr. Nirofar Siddiqui. She's an assistant professor of political science at the Rockefeller College of Public Affairs and Policy at SUNY Albany. She's also a non-resident fellow at the Stimson Center and a fellow at the Mehboobul Haq Research Center at LAMS. She has studied Pakistani politics and the politics of other countries from so many angles that it's a bit hard to summarize her contribution. Her recent book, Under the Gun, Political Parties and Violence in Pakistan, studies why political parties engage in violence or form alliances with violent actors. She co-edited a volume on the form and function of political parties in Pakistan that I had the good fortune of contributing to. This book is titled Pakistan's Political Parties Surviving Between Dictatorship and Democracy. And then she has numerous papers in top political science journals on these topics related to political violence and, and party behavior, as well as on how voter behavior is influenced by factors such as conspiracy theories, misinformation, foreign policy, religion, and ethnicity. We'll touch on many of these topics today. Nilofar, thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Asad. Um, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Awesome. Okay, so let's jump in and let's start with talking about political parties. Um, so there's now a growing volume of work, um, including a lot of your own work, on the role that political parties play within the constraints that they operate, right? So it's well known that political parties are facing a lot of constraints from external actors. Um, and, uh, you know, despite many of the constraints that they face, um, they're able to kind of carve a way in which through, the, through which they influence outcomes, right? So often we hear arguments in Pakistan that uh, what really matters for politics is either local elites who basically have their own captive voter base um, and what really matters is is who the person is who's on the ticket and not what the party is and on the other hand we often hear the argument that it's actually state institutions at the top who decide which parties are able to compete um, and which parties have restrictions placed upon them and so aren't able to fairly compete in elections so when you hear these kinds of arguments what arguments do you have to, to say that parties are important actors and parties do influence outcomes in elections. Yeah, so this is a really important point. And, um, you know, something that I think many of us have heard, those of us who study political parties, is something that comes up every time we um, present our research or or just speak gen generally um, about the place and role of political parties in Pakistan. And I do think this is with good reason, right? I mean, I don't think anybody would argue that civil-military relations in Pakistan aren't skewed. Um, it's very clear that the military is the most important actor in Pakistan today. I don't think there's really any doubt about this. Um, but I think that one, one thing that has motivated my own work is this sense that maybe the existing literature, um, especially that that existed maybe, you know, 10 to 15 years 
um, prior. I think things are changing now, um, including with your work. Uh, but there's, I think this has been taken a little too far, right? With the existing literature focusing so heavily on um, the military and other institutions to the extent that parties are kind of seen as largely secondary actors um, or those that don't really have a seminal place in Pakistani politics. Um, and I just, I don't think that that is really accurate either. Um, I think that, you know, if parties didn't matter, they wouldn't be dominating the discourse to the extent that they do. I mean, you you can't pick up a box on a newspaper or turn on a box on a news channel without hearing the names of all political parties, right? Um, they wouldn't be, uh, you know, people wouldn't care about party labels, but surveys show again and again that parties, that voters do care about party labels. Um, individuals join political parties, uh, party candidates, electoral candidates switch between political parties, right? None of these things would happen if parties didn't matter at all. Um, now, I think the, the question that we should be asking, right, is really within the constraints that political parties face, um, of which there are many, how do political parties see their role? Um, how do different political parties act differently um, depending on these constraints? And really, in a sense, like we should think about, I think, um, the role of the political party vis-a-vis -vis the military as maybe one additional characteristic of the party that voters have in mind when they cast a vote, right? Just as they keep in mind the party's policies or the party's ethnicity or ethnic claims or other party um, promises, right? For clientelism or, or, or patronage and so on. What has happened in the last year or two since kind of the events that started with the vote of no confidence against Imran Khan, you know, the ways in which parties have responded um, to these things, the ways the parties have evolved. Um, and, you know, the changes have been kind of transformational in many ways. Um, what does that say about your argument that the true test of party strength or the role of parties lies in how they respond to to external kind of factors. Yeah, I think that, you know, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts about this as well, because I think the events of the last two or three years, really since 2018, I guess, have been really critical um, to the functioning of parties in Pakistan. Um, I don't want to go too far away from the question you posed about the no confidence motion, but I do think it's important for us to just think about how the landscape of Pakistani politics, and not just party politics, but politics in general, has changed with the addition of this third party actor in the form of the PTI, right? And so obviously Pakistan is a, Pakistan is a multi-party system. There's numerous political parties, um, but for all intents and purposes, the PMLN and the PPP were alternating uh, federal power, right? So in terms of power at the center. So I, I do think that this entry in a real way of the PTI um, was transformative in many ways. Um, and even then, when we're talking about 2018, right, there's this question of to what extent those elections were free and fair. Um, and I think, again, one of those things that you you can't really fully argue is that they were entirely free and fair. I think it's pretty clear that political parties were not provided um, an even playing field, right, in the, in the weeks and months that preceded the election. Even then, however, I think that, um, you know, scholars or, or other commentators who argue that the elections were entirely rigged um, are also missing the incredible impact that the PTI had on the voting landscape, right? And I think that um, we also need to look at that election and think about other changing patterns. So urbanization or the increase in partisanship, the influence of rhetoric, right? And how much that matters. 
Um, and I think that this is kind of a big shift. I don't think it's a, a shift that has happened entirely. Um, but if you look at just like, you know, the 1990s and prior, we're really talking about a world in which um, it seems like, at least from the data and information that's available to us, that voters really cast their vote primarily on the basis of promises of patronage and clientelism. Um, and so there, the and identity of the local elite mattered a lot. And I think absolutely the identity of the local elite still matters a lot in many parts of Pakistan today. But I think that what we've seen is also this shift towards um, partisanship and party voter linkages mattering in a very different way than they matter just 20 years prior. Um, and I think also the role of, uh, of, of, of discourse and populist rhetoric um, and even party ideology um, matters again, and it might only matter to some seg segments of society, and it only might matter in some places in Pakistan. But that doesn't mean it doesn't matter, right? And I think that the PTI phenomenon has really shown that. Um, now, that being said, of course, the PTI wasn't able to come to power until it did adopt some of these characteristics of the weakly organized parties, right? So the they had to bring on the electables in order to win, right? They, they couldn't just rely on partisanship and ideology and rhetoric without that. So I'm not trying to say one is more important than the other, just that we need to, to recognize that there are these two simultaneous trends that are happening. Um, and then the no confidence motion itself, right? I mean, I think um, there's so much has been said about this, right? And so the role of the military is very, I think, very clear. But the fact that the parties were able to come together, um, that they were able to engage in this kind of coalition building, wheeling and dealing, um, and get the votes that they needed, um, and do so within, you know, uh, ostensibly uh, constitutional way, right, is I think also really important to note. Um, at the end of the day, though, we do have a situation once again, where a political party did not complete its constitution, not a political party, yeah, a political party and a prime minister, right, did not complete their constitutionally mandated time in office. So while things were different, it it is also a continuation of the same, right, the same things that we saw in the 1990s. Um, yeah, I'll stop there. <laughs> no, I think um, I think it's fair to say, based on kind of many observations and, and many reports, that yes, the 2018 election weren't a free and fair election either. And at the same time, competition really mattered in that election. <laughs> and that there were kind of many races that really determined the outcome of that election and that were fairly fought. Um, I remember doing research um, in Lahore at that time, working with political workers, some of whom were not able to participate in the research because uh, they were being pressured in, in various ways to not be politically active at that time. Mm -hmm. um, and we see kind of a version of the same pressure, except on a different side in, in this election. So 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 it is it is true that those constraints have existed before. So this is not a discontinuous break from the past. And at the same time that there is ample space for competition and for parties to kind of stamp their own uh, unique kind of uh, identity onto kind of whoever comes to their fold. Um, and we have seen that, um, you know, the PTI has behaved in many ways very differently from what came before. And then in other ways, it has had to kind of flow into the system. Uh, and right. so, for instance, in my my native district of, of Chakwal, um, in 2018, there was a PMLN politician um, who won from 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 my um, uh, from my native constituency. Uh, but in 2023, that that same politician switched to the PTI and won easily. And mm -hmm. there was definitely a segment of his vote base that was captive in the way uh, that we think of kind of traditionally. But there were also many voters that were 
would not have voted for that guy if he did not switch to PTI because these were ideological PTI voters. So, uh, you know, uh, someone I spoke with during my field research, he was an MA and um, at the time. He explained, you know, I was asking him generally about how voters vote and how parties decide who to give a party ticket to. And he said, you know, you look at the constituency and you look how much percent of this, the vote here is a party vote and how much of it is the independent vote. And he's like, if the places has a 40 to 50 percent party vote, you can go with maybe a less popular independent actor, right? So the local electable, where it has a 70 to 80 percent vote that's based on the person's personality, you give that party ticket to the local elite, right? Whoever that happens to be. And I think it was just, it was explained so simply, but it made so much intuitive sense, right? That there is this, each constituency has different dynamics. Dynamics are between, in effect, what is the control of the local electable and what is his influence um, and what is the appeal of the political party, right? And I think the thing that, and I, I'm curious if you agree, but it seems like what's happening since 2018 and the years slightly prior with the emergence of the PTI is the relative shift of the party vote versus the local electable vote is starting to see bigger and bigger shifts in some constituencies, right? So it's particularly in those urbanizing constituencies, I think you're starting to see that more and more of this is the party vote. Um, and in some areas, we're still seeing a very large percentage of the vote being the electable vote. I, I think, yeah, I would agree with you that um, it's definitely more prevalent in urban areas, uh, but at the same time, urbanization is is happening really fast. And so areas that were kind of, you know, very clearly rural 10, 15 years ago are now peri-urban. There's a lot more kind of, uh, you know, tra traveling immigration to nearby cities. There's a lot of lot more education. There's a lot more social media. And so all of these trends, I think, make the spread of ideology faster Exactly. And make traditional ties a little bit weaker sometimes. Uh, and so, so you know, so the trend that you're describing kind of does resonate. Um, there is also the fact of kind of a, a population that's becoming much younger on average. And so these younger voters may not kind of agree with the traditional ways in which their forefathers related to local elites, uh, perhaps. I want to I wanna make a little segue into thinking about a feature of political parties that arguably receives a little bit less attention in in Punjab. Um, so, in, you know, for instance, uh, in my research, I did not encounter that as a kind of a prominent feature of political parties. So that's why I'm particularly fascinated by your book. Um, and I want to hear your thoughts on when you talk about political violence and, you know, you have you have the book about uh, why political parties engage in violence and kind of why the form alliances with you know, even when we don't explicitly think of political parties engaging in violence, they do have local alliances, you show, uh, with actors that may be violent. So even the major political parties kind of engage in this sort of behavior. Um, so for the, for, you know, for people who may not be kind of as, who may not think of political parties as kind of violent actors, um, can you describe what you mean by political violence? What are the various forms of political violence? And why is it important to think about political violence as we think about an election? Sure. So uh, you're right that I think when we think about political violence and we're thinking maybe about Pakistan, maybe the first thing that comes to our mind is uh, places like Karachi, right? So where for nearly three decades, we had very high levels of um, political violence, also ethnic violence. And this was uh, perhaps 
predominantly associated with the Mutahedakami movement or the MQM, which is a majority Mohajir political party. Um, and so during this time, the, the MQM, as I describe in my book, in, and, and lots of other scholars, uh, Laurent Gaillard's work on Karachi as well, describes this phenomenon of, um, you know, basically what I call direct party violence. So where the political party engages in violence directly through its own party cadres and party members. Um, the MQM, there's a lot of evidence to show that, you know, for large parts of the 90s, moving into the 2000s, um, you know, it had this kind of dedicated military uh, wing in the party, which engaged in extortion, um, which was often violent, um, but also uh, various targeted killings and intimidation of police office, office, officials, excuse me, um, journalists, even uh, members of other political parties and other ethnic groups. Um, and I think that kind of is what maybe perhaps we think about the most when we think about party violence in Pakistan. But in my book, I conceive of violence more broadly. Um, and so I do, I, I think of three different possible violence strategies that political parties can engage in. Uh, the first is the one that I described, which I call direct party violence. Uh, the second is what I call outsourcing. And so here the party will um, delegate the task of violence to a third actor. And so this might be a criminal gang or an ethnic militia. Um, and one of the examples that we see in Karachi is the relationship between the PPP and the People's Amman Committee for a period of time, right? And so we had once again the PPP, um, uh, like like the MQM and other political parties in Karachi, um, you know, use this ethnic militia um, to intimidate opponents, uh, to engage in extortion on its behalf, um, and uh, to sometimes even use violence as a way to make salient the ethnic identity, right? Because uh, Karachi was very much divided into these, uh, uh, Karachi was very much um, voting along ethnic lines at this time. And then the third phenomenon, which I think is more salient or relevant for Punjab is what I call alliance formation with violent specialists. And so this is distinct from violent outsourcing because the political party is not delegating the task of violence, um, but rather it is merely allying with an actor who is otherwise violent. And so here the um, party might not benefit from the violence at all. In fact, the violence may be a cost that the party has here, but for purposes of vote gain, it feels like it needs to ally with this militant actor. And I think the uh, example that most exemplifies this is um, the relationship that some political parties have had to anti-Shia sectarian groups um, in the country. And so this uh, we see in Sindh, and then we also see in Punjab, particularly South Punjab, but elsewhere as well. So you may remember as well before the 2013 election, before the 2008 election, also before the 2018 election, but to a lesser degree, there were all these news stories that would be released uh, in the months prior where there was these different um, individuals who were affiliated with the band um, ASWJ, the former, formerly known as Sabai Sahaba, um, and other such organizations or groups. And so we saw that these individuals were being given tickets by political parties for, on which to contest elections. Or we saw this very famous photo that circulated of Rana Sanaullah with um, Maulana Lubyanvi of the ASWJ, right, campaigning together. And so all these questions arose about like, what is happening and why are these parties being seen as like allying with uh, or giving party tickets to or trying to get the support of these actors. And so this was a puzzle that um, makes up one chapter of my book, which is to try and understand these parties, which are not themselves anti-Shia, right? Um, they're not really looking to alienate um, the, the Shia uh, vote bank. So what gain are they getting, right, from these sorts of alliances? Um, and so, it, and this actually does, I think, tie back to 
the conversation we were having in the prior question, which is that I find um, that in many ways, these sectarian actors or local clerics or whatever you want to call them, violence specialists, they were at the local level replacing the historic local elite, which was the feudal actor or the peer or somebody else, right? And they were able to gain local influence. And this was for a number of reasons, right? So obviously we have um, regional factors, the proxy war between Iran and Saudi bringing a lot of money into the madrasas, um, all sorts of other factors. So these individuals were gaining a lot of local influence, right? So there's a lot of reports of these madrasas flourishing, having a lot of money suddenly. Um, and they were able to start providing for um, the local residents in a way that once only the feudals were able to provide for. And they also had this added benefit, especially again in urbanizing areas, where they were able to say that, you know, for a long time, the feudal elites have kept you down um, and Biradri linkages as well are hierarchical. And so Islam doesn't believe in any of these things. Um, and so we're providing you a more egalitarian option, right? And so you had a replacement of the old local elite with a new local elite. Um, but this local elite and the feudals too, I conceive of as in some, to some extent, and in some places as violent specialists, right? So many of them, especially in Sindh, known to have their own private militias. Often the police is in basically in their control. They have some private jails, right? Um, so, so the same, I think in many ways, it's a very similar phenomenon. So the political parties, in this case, parties that I conceive of as organizationally weak, who don't have the political party presence in these local areas to be able to win elections without the support of the local elites, need to turn to the local actor, be that actor feudal or sectarian, in order to win the vote um, of that particular area. And so we see these alliances happening. They're obviously um, often short-lived. They're often just pre-electoral and then for the purposes of winning the ticket, right? They're not really ideological at some strong fundamental level, um, but they do have these repercussions, right, of increasing the influence of these groups or cementing them within the political process. Um, so that's, uh, so I guess that's, that's starting from direct party violence to outsourcing to alliance formation is how I see, um, is, is how I conceive of violence more broadly, right? So it's not just electoral violence, but political violence and party violence more broadly. I want to segue now to thinking about how parties engage with voters um, and kind of how that uh, ends up influencing not just electoral outcomes, but, but kind of outcomes in general. Um, and, and here I want to bring in kind of actors and political parties that are not at the senior leadership level, right? And so you know, when we talk about parties, mostly we think about what is the senior leadership, right? And what, or who are these kind of electables that kind of are given tickets uh, to to kind of fight uh, in um, in kind of national or provincial elections? But parties are also composed of these thousands of ground level political workers, brokers, um, who do the actual work. Of, of mobilizing voters and then kind of in the, in the in the intervening periods between elections kind of contacting them and kind of making sure that they're kind of still loyal that they're you know uh that that come next election they will be um voting for them so these actors are kind of really acting as intermediaries or brokers between the senior level politicians and and, and voters um and it's in this space that that some of my work speaks to uh, kind of many reasons for optimism about the political process, right? So a couple of quick examples are uh, uh, in work with with Ali Chiman Chandana uh, moment, I find that in uh, areas where there are more political workers belonging to more different parties, um, there end up 
being higher levels of improvements to service delivery, right? So this is where there's dense competition, even in the presence of all of these forces at the macro level that we've talked about, if there are more political workers at the ground level, there'll be more service delivery improvements. Um, and so, you know, that speaks to party voter linkages being strong, um, irrespective of anything that's going on at the macro level. Um, things will end up being better for for, for people. Um, and these are also, most of these people have been trained to be these local politicians or workers in kind of fairly repressive military regimes, right? Mm -hmm. So the, a lot of these became local politicians uh, when Musharraf introduced the local, local government system in 2002. Um, and then there's also findings that when local politicians become more aware of what, you know, people in their constituency care about, then their behavior starts shifting in response. So these, you know, local actors are also very responsive. Um, now, this is a story that, that kind of says that like party voter linkages really matter a lot uh, mm -hmm. and parties are responsive that parties are these kind of, you know, uh, actors that are working that part of their calculus of winning elections includes doing what people want. Uh, now, this is, I want to caveat that these are all kind of uh, findings from Punjab, which in many ways is, you know, arguably kind of the poster child of political competition in Pakistan and where too much attention goes. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so I want to ask you, you know, given this kind of context, how do you think local local kind of linkages between parties and voters operate in other parts of the country where you have done work, where you have more insight on whether local competition or whether local engagement between parties and voters um, ends up being beneficial for, for people? Yeah, so uh, firstly, I should say that your description of your research, um, I think, is also highlights a lot the first question you posed to me, right, which is why parties are important. And I think that this in particular kind of gets lost in the discussion. And um, I, my work also, you know, is kind of more uh, does it doesn't really unpack so much um, this kind of middle level that you're talking about. And so I think it's, it's incredibly important. Um, excuse me. I don't know if I have great answers um, to your question about like how this varies from um, Punjab to Sindh and other parts of the country, KP. Um, I think the I've done some survey work that includes um, other provinces besides Punjab. Um, and I think there are some differences that I have found quite interesting just in terms of trying to understand what aspect of an electoral candidate is appealing to a voter um, in these different provinces. I do think, though, in, in a way, I, I believe that the bigger cleavage isn't so much provincial differences as much as like urban-rural differences. And so I think that what we're seeing when we find differences between provinces is really maybe a function of how rural that province is. Um, and that, I think, matters in part because the traditional power uh, holders or stakeholders are different in each of these um, provinces, um, again, based on the rural urban split. The only exception, I think, is in Balochistan, which is does not, I don't um, focus on Balochistan in my work because uh, that is where I think, um, you know, democracy is least present um, in our country. And so uh, the ability of parties to function independently there, I think, is really suspect. Um, so maybe I would say Balochistan probably we have the least good information um, and probably has the most idiosyncratic factors at play. Um, but otherwise, I think my guess is that urban rule kind of overrules provincial differences. So so I think I think we've started talking about like how how people decide who to vote for uh, in many ways and like what are the factors that kind of underlie that. And that I think um, I, I want to sketch out for our listeners kind of how 
political scientists traditionally thought about this about this question and and you know and and many of the factors that we have been discussing kind of show how Pakistan kind of is a different case and many kind of developing democracies are a different case of that um so I guess traditionally when when political scientists thought of vote choice in in kind of this this paradigm of kind of rational choice where like people you know do the do what's rationally best for them um you know that kind of view put forward uh, this idea that the main things that voters are looking for is performance of, of of some kind, right? So they have some expectations when they're looking forward about, you know, the different potential candidates, how they will perform on, on some kind of uh, dimensions. Uh, and they use past performance uh, as a guide to tell them uh, which, you know, which politician will, will, will perform in a certain way. And so what kind of performance that could be, you know, something programmatic like building roads, uh, providing education, providing healthcare, or it could be clientelistic as you, as, as we've been talking about these kind of local electables, they engage in kind of this clientelistic behavior. Um, and, you know, your work has shown and other work has shown that there is a prime role that ethnicity or identity can also play. And, you know, that also plays out in, in many other, I, I guess, any democracy really. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess, Close things off there. Do you think that there's kind of like any major factors that we haven't discussed that kind of play a big role in vote choice for the Pakistani voter? Yeah, no, I'm actually really glad you raised this because one thing I should have mentioned earlier um, is we haven't really discussed the role of the economy. Um, and I do think actually that this was a very central factor in um the even the months just prior to the no confidence vote. Um, because if you look at the data. Um, and I actually think I kind of coincidentally had data on partisan support because for another survey I was doing in January of the year of the no confidence vote. So um, just three months prior. And uh, I also had survey data the year prior, right? So the year prior we had, and if I recall correctly, this was nationally representative and we had an overall um, PTI was maybe leading PMLN by 10 percentage points in my sample, right? So obviously it was a small sample. I don't want to say this was like what a an election would have looked like. So all those caveats. Um, but PATI was above PMLN, particularly in Punjab, but nationally as well. And then a year later, so just in January, so three months before the no confidence vote, we had my my survey showed now that the PMLN was leading the PTI by um, a sizable uh, percentage, right? Um, and this was measured by who do you think you would vote for in the next election or something like that. And I think that that is both striking that like there was such a big shift in one year, but also kind of not at all striking because the economy was doing terribly right at this time. And so we would absolutely expect that people would see this bad economy and then they would they would say, oh, no, the PTI is not working for us, no matter how much we like this person's ideology or like the charisma of Irman Khan or so on. Um and, uh, you know, I who knows what would have happened if the no conference motion hadn't happened. But my, I would it's easy to say now because nobody can prove me wrong. But I would have predicted that PTI would have lost and elections had been held freely and fairly, um, you know, in that year. And uh, now you look and just uh, I think, again, it's, it's going to be hard to tell what happens because it's very unlikely we're going to have a completely free and fair election. Um, but the support that we are seeing for the PTI right now, I think at least partly has to do with now voters placing the blame for the economy back on the PDM, right? So the or the PML and specifically, but the all the parties involved in this coalition. And so 
Um, I do think absolutely the economy matters. Um, and I do think that kind of very traditional political science concepts of like, you know, you're going to place the blame on the incumbent and all of those things do apply in this context as well. Um, and we shouldn't be, I think, surprised about that. Um, the other thing about, you know, you raise about identity and ethnicity. I think um, this is, you know, it's a really good point. It's, it's certainly like very important or was very important in Karachi, still remains likely very important in Karachi, but things again have changed since 2018. Um, is, is of course that, you know, uh, ethnicity can be salient. The only thing that I would add, which I don't think makes Pakistan different from other contexts, um, but I think was still striking to me when I was doing my research, is that um, ethnicity and identity more broadly is, is very situational and contextual, um, which again, seems like maybe an obvious point, but I was struck by how much being Pashtun mattered in Karachi versus in KP, right? Because as a minority member of a multi-ethnic city like Karachi, where ethnicity is salient, um, your vote is going to have a different effect than as a member of a majority Pashtun context like KP, where all the candidates are Pashtun, right? And so I do think that this sense of the same political party, like the ANP, when it was working in KP and when it was in um, uh, Karachi as well, would be making very different types of appeals um, to its constituents. Um, even though it was obviously, it's a Pashtun party, like an uh, explicitly Pashtun party, but the work that being Pashtun was doing in KP for the ANP was very different than the work that being Pashtun was doing for the ANP in Karachi during this time. That's a very interesting point. And I, and I think that's a point that many in Punjab don't quite understand because Punjab is kind of far more ethnically homogenous yeah. uh, compared to, you know, Lahore, for instance, is very uh, ethnically homogenous compared to Karachi. And so yeah. and so people sometimes don't understand kind of why identity may matter in elections, uh, because, you know, the, the, no such cleavage kind of on, the, on a basis of ethnicity um, exists at that level in Lahore. Um, I, I thought it was very interesting that you, when you were talking about the role of the economy, you were talking about um, how voters may kind of attribute the blame for for kind of the recent economic downturn on the on the PDM or the PMLN uh, as opposed to the PDI, and I think that speaks to like start speaking to this notion that you know voters don't always know who to blame and don't yeah. always know sometimes even what the facts are, and in kind of the current climate of you know, the very high penetration of social media and the ability to spread news or fake news very quickly, uh, that that kind of might be taking voters away from this kind of like high information or like good information environment, right? Um, and you've studied this this kind of uh, phenomenon of misinformation and conspiracy theories. Uh, can you tell us about the kind of misinformation that's out there in the political space in Pakistan and, and how parties kind of use it? And, and does do you think that may end up influencing elections? So I've been fascinated by conspiracy theories in Pakistan for a long time, right? And I think it is just objectively so interesting, in part because I think that we are unable as, as a society or as a country or as like political leaders or whatever, as voters, to really come to an agreement on something, not because we have like necessarily different views of that outcome, but just because we can't agree on the same facts, right? And that is just so striking because if we just could decide what the facts were about a particular story or whatever, we might actually find that there is agreement on the, on the outcome. 
So I do think that misinformation, broadly speaking, false information is just is really a very important part of the political landscape. Um, and so we find everything even before, um, you know, social media really took off. Um, there was, a, you know, lots of talk about conspiracies in Pakistan. Um, my early work that I did as a um, graduate student uh, was looking at what happens when political parties uh, endorse a particular conspiracy and whether that moves, whether voters believe that conspiracy or not. And, um, you know, there's a lot of work in American politics to suggest that, yes, they would be moved because partisanship is so strong in Pakistan. But I think when I conducted the survey, which was almost 10 years ago at this point, I don't think it was very clear because partisanship in Pakistan um, was uh, especially then, but even today, less strong than it is in the U.S., right? But I did find that party endorsement of conspiracies did move um, partisan voters. Um, so when their party endorsed a conspiracy and made their voters more likely to vote, to believe the conspiracy. Um, I also found that baseline belief in conspiracies was very high. But the the party found finding really kind of suggests to me that parties are able to kind of move people to their viewpoint by endorsing or engaging in this space. Um, and we definitely talk a lot about the PTI specifically when it comes to misinformation. Um, in fact, the survey, which again, I did a long time ago at the time, PTI voters were uh, the most likely of any other voters to uh, believe conspiracy theories across all treatment groups, right? So this was a finding even then. Um, but I think it's in in a way, um, really Imran Khan has occupied not just in misinformation, but just in general rhetoric and discourse has been his space, right? We don't see other leaders coming out in the same way to engage in this narrative war with him. Um, and so his, and, and in many ways it is, I think, because he is kind of functioning like um, a populist leader in, in many ways. Um, so he, he is able, I think, to both engage in, in misinformation, but also cast doubts on um, on official narratives, right? So we saw this a lot in the days after the no confidence motion with this question of what exactly was the US's role. Um, Gallup Boxen had done some polling to see what, how much people believed that the US was involved and it increased maybe double digits in terms over the few months just from Iran. It seemingly just from Iran Khan's narrative alone, right? And so, um, but I think what also Iran Khan does very effectively, and this is maybe adjacent to misinformation, but a little bit separate, is he's able to create this kind of very neat narrative about the economy and the corruption of these parties, right? And so this his his anti-corruption narrative, his anti-status quo narrative, kind of is able to very nicely fit into Pakistan's economy being bad because there's a simple solution. You get rid of the corrupt leaders and your economy will be fixed, right? Um, and so this, I think, has helped him be able to kind of shed the blame of the economy from himself. And you said, you know, like uh, voters don't really know um, who to play, place blame on. I mean, the reality is like, I don't always understand the nuances of the economy, right? So, um, and I actually, you know, mostly study this stuff. And so if I don't really know what's happening and things are changing so quickly and it's over the course of many years, we can't expect voters to, right? The average voter. And so really it's the person that's winning this narrative war, I think, um, that is able to also win control over who's to blame for the economy. Yeah, that's that's very insightful because I think, you know, my, my question was, you know, I, I was trying to get more narrowly at misinformation, but I think you very rightly broadened that up to 
how politicians form narratives um, and, you know, misinformation may play a role within that narrative, but I think it may be more plausible um, if it fits coherently within a broader narrative that has yeah. kind of bits and pieces of truth in there as well that kind of resonate with voters. Um, and, and I think, I mean, it is an open question for me whether um, what these kinds of narratives do is strengthen party support among existing supporters or switch mm-hmm. voters away, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we also see like in the US, but also in Pakistan on some of these, let's say, beliefs about corruption, right? You see like extremely partisan views. That, for instance, PTI voters will think that by far the biggest problem in Pakistan is is corruption. This is, I guess, true maybe a couple of years ago. Right now, I think everybody thinks the biggest problem is the economy. But they still are more likely to believe that um, corruption is a big problem, whereas people who don't support PTI will not uh, believe that corruption is a big problem. Right. So there is a there is a sense in which like narratives help strengthen support as opposed to switching support sometimes but obviously there are always going to be people on the margin young people who are kind of you know become politically aware uh and so you know these kind of political narratives embedded with a little bit of misinformation here and there um may end up kind of influencing how how, how people vote um um i guess towards the end of our conversation i want to um talk about kind of this broad problem of inclusion and tolerance um, in the political space. Um, and in particular, um, I wanted to you know, talk about some research that you have done that may provide kind of a silver lining with caveats. Um, and so kind of, I guess the context here is, you know, for all of our listeners, it's no surprise that in the, in the political space or generally in kind of society, uh, differing from the majoritarian point of view in Pakistan comes with a lot of costs. Um, these costs may be kind of, you know, marginalization or they may be active persecution and sometimes even violence right so we have a brand of nationalism that's very punjab centric sunni centric male centric um and is kind of heavily policed in many ways by by powerful state institutions um and is kind of frequently exploited by 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 by, by many groups as well and so what we end up with is kind of a sharp sectarian divide we have kind of you know problems with accepting other religions we have problems with um, you know, we have had active persecution of Ahmadis in the country. Um, in one of your papers, you find evidence that uh, having a notion of a national identity that's strong can actually be useful um, in making people who are kind of followers of that national identity feel more tolerant of minorities. Can you tell us a little bit about that paper and whether I'm right in thinking that, that there is a silver lining here? Sure. Yeah, I think a silver lining with caveats is exactly the way to put it. Um, so, yeah, so in this paper, again, it was a survey that we conducted and we found that um, uh, highlighting the national contributions of a minority. Um, and in this case, we looked at uh, the contributions of Abdus Salam by uh, bringing, you know, national honor to Pakistan through this Nobel Prize for physics, um, whether that could increase support or tolerance of Ahmadis, um, given that his identity was of an, as an Ahmadi, right? And we found that um, it did, right? Uh, there were there was variation um, across uh, region, and we found the event, uh, the sorry, uh, effect was strongest in Punjab. But overall, we found that there was this effect. And so this is uh, part of a broader literature known as like the superordinate um, identity model or this idea of you can, if you prime a shared national identity, an identity to which you and the minority and the outgroup belong, then you can 
make people reconceive themselves not as distinct on whatever the identity is that makes one, someone an in-group or out-group, but to make both of them think of themselves as the shared group, right? And so in this case, making everybody think of um, themselves and Ahmadis as both Pakistani helped increase tolerance towards Ahmadis. So I, I do think that this is in many ways a silver lining, but um, in, in work that I'm currently working on um, with Asfan Mir, we have kind of continued this uh, examination or exploration of the effects of nationalism on um, on various downstream outcomes. And so our one paper that we're working on right now finds that nationalism, even nationalism that's cohesive, right? So this idea, idea, idea that um, different ethnic or linguistic or religious or sectarian minorities can all work together and um, uh, for a better Pakistan. So even nationalism like that, right, that is meant to increase the um, idea of minorities and majority groups working together for Pakistan, that can increase belief um, that right-seeking minority groups are um, subversives, right? So, and by this, I mean, we we have a lot of examples in Pakistan, unfortunately, of groups like Orath March, uh, like the PTM, Pashtun Tahafaz Movement, um, and so on, even uh, many uh, below groups as well, who are seen as being supported by foreign agents if they are demanding more rights, right? So every year or with March when it's like getting out there to demand more rights for women um, is accused of having a foreign agenda, of being a foreign plant, right? Of, of getting money from India or the US or wherever. Same with the PTM and others. And so we find, we had expected that a cohesive form of nationalism would decrease these sorts of beliefs, right? We thought we would be able to say, you know, look like everybody's, uh, you know, we're all, brothers and sisters in this land, we do so well together. But I think what we found with follow-up focus groups and follow-up work is that actually this might work great. Nationalism works great if you are a good minority, right? If you are a minority who's bringing positive attention to the country. But as soon as you're doing something that is bringing negative attention to the country by, for example, um, bringing attention to the problems of women's rights in Pakistan um, or the problems that uh, particular ethnic minorities face in Pakistan, then you are cast as the bad minority, right? And then you are seen, and, and that increases um, intolerance and these beliefs that these groups are supported by foreign powers. Um, another example, of course, I think is Malala, right? It's, it's kind of stark and fascinating, right? Because in some ways she's bringing a lot of uh, national attention to the country that we can think of as positive because she's a Pakistani who won all these awards. On the other hand, I think many people believe that she's highlighting the social ills of the country, right? And so she's bringing kind of dishonor to the country. She's uh, contesting the status of Pakistan at the international level. Um, and so this is really making me less optimistic about nationalism as a way to increase tolerance of minorities. Yeah, one, one thing I'm hearing in your response is that, you know, if the axis along which you're marginalized, if that kind of conflicts with uh, nationalism and you're not, uh, you're kind of, you know, if by expressing your identity, uh, you have to, in many ways, express that grievance um, and that, it you know, it is often a political choice and sometimes it's unavoidable uh, uh, and it is, it definitely should be, Kind of you know a right um uh when when that conflicts with national identity then uh the kind of the system works against you often exactly. in, in a very drastic ways um and so yeah that i agree 
uh, does not leave that much room for a silver lining. It, it's it's very much kind of the this kind of trope of like the model minority. If you can play along with the rules, then you may be rewarded. Um, and and I think I think we we kind of see this a little bit with the way women are included or not included in politics, right? So like when you know, for instance, the Orat March is kind of uh, actively persecuted or vilified in many ways. Uh, but when women are kind of you know happy to go along with either the family members who are in politics or kind of you know not make too much noise in politics, then they are sometimes given uh, tickets and you know sometimes they do become politicians. But it's it's hard to find kind of examples of of of, of women who are kind of truly pursuing a feminist agenda that goes against uh, kind of majoritarian views of how the country should be run, um, and then you know they actually get support. Um, um Dito for thank you so much for being here this was this was such an exciting conversation we're going to end but not before i ask you this final question who's going to win the election <laughs> oh gosh i mean who's even going to contest the election i think is the first question right who's going to be allowed to contest um i'm going to put my money on the pmln what about you right. uh i think i i don't know <laughs> you have to choose somebody I'm now. Going, I'm, go, I'm going to punt. Uh, okay. <laughs> I think, I, th I think, you know, yeah, it'll be hard. It'll be hard for the for the PMLN not to be in the winning alliance, given how things are. Um, thank you so much, Nilofar. This has been a pleasure. Thank you, Asad.